goals again. He gets the edge and he's brilliantly caught by Kawaja in the galley. Drops it at his toes and comes through for a single for the first time in the Australian summer. An Australian batsman gets the chance to kiss the bat. Head down the pitch. He drives. This could be it. He beats him off. The arm is in the air already. There's nothing quite like your first test century. The Renegades have proved that nothing is impossible. Covering cricket across Australia and right around the globe. This is Stumps with Bryce McGain and Jordan Cornelis. Ah, yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this festive edition of Stumps, your dedicated weekly cricket show. Adelaide Strikers star Peter Siddle will join us to review last night's stirring Big Bash win over the Melbourne Stars, and former Australian cricketer Tony Dottabay will have a chat about the famous 1987 Boxing Day Test, which was the last time Australia and New Zealand contested that marquee test slot at the MCG. My name is Damian Watson, filling in for Jordan Canellis today, and in the midst of the Boxing Day Test, I'm joined by a former Australian and Victorian spinner who graced the hallowed turf of the MCG on plenty of occasions in Bryce <laughs> McGain. Welcome, Bryce. Did you have a good Christmas? I had a fantastic Christmas. Great to be here with you, Damo. And uh, look, it, it, this is the most exciting time for me uh, oh, yeah. in Melbourne. Melbourne is absolutely buzzing at the moment as we speak. Uh, I had to go out of the MCG and drive past. The atmosphere is just enormous. You can hear it from uh, the parklands around the MCG, the chanting supporters, both New Zealand and Australian supporters. Uh, it's just a, a wonderful time, and the crowds, they're enormous. Absolutely, and I know this show goes to other states, but given we're Victorians, we'd have to boast about the crowds. 180,000, I think, going through the gates over the first three days of the Boxing Day test. They were talking about moving it to WA and various other places in the lead-up. Surely it's got to stay at the MCG. Well, the, the only question has probably been the wicket. I think the wicket's been fine, but yep. the, the amount of people that come, the, the Melbourne supporters, and it, it's a great place for people to want to come and the tourists want to come from the opposition. So we've certainly mm. seen that. There's over 20,000 New Zealanders who came in on Boxing Day uh, and, and just enormous crowds that uh, that support it. They love to get around Melbourne, even people walking around the Yarra, they're having a break from the cricket maybe today. They'll go tomorrow. So all the things around Melbourne, it is the world's most livable city as well too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, always at least in the top two every year. Sometimes we have to give Vienna a bit of a go, but yeah, that's usually it. Melbourne's up there. And Adelaide's not far away either. So, yeah, it's, it's a great place to go and visit. But And the test match over there is an absolute ripper as well. But... Melbourne leading the way with the Boxing Day test. And as you said, it's the first time since 87 that the New Zealanders have been here. And it, I think it's been terrific, even though you know, mm. it's getting a little one-sided at the moment that Australia are on top. A few late wickets at the moment uh, with New Zealand uh, fighting their way back in. But I think in terms of the declaration, uh, Australia will be bowling a few overs at the New Zealand openers by the end of t- this afternoon, I think. Yes, it'll be interesting to see how it does play out, but you'd have to be disappointed at New Zealand's batting capacity so far. There was a lot of promise in the lead-up and a lot of build-up and anticipation coming into the series, given what New Zealand had displayed against England shortly before the series begun. Have you been disappointed based on your expectations? I know you said the MCG wicket might be conducive more so to the way they play compared to Perth, but what have your observations have been? Yeah, spot on. And I thought that the, the change where they played the, the two tests uh, against England in New Zealand, slow, low wickets, very, very different conditions to Perth. Perth was completely the opposite, fast, bouncy, and I knew that that would be a huge change for them. 
So I, I knew that would be a struggle. I thought they would have adapted better at the MCG, but they, mm. they really battled through. And it, I, I think it, what it proves to me and the my summation of it now is that the bowling attack and the bowling depth that Australia have is world-class. So to think that one of the, the, the best bowlers in Hazelwood comes out, but someone like James Pattinson comes in, he would be the leading bowler in six other nations. Like, he would be the number one. At this stage, he's the backup bowler yeah. with, with Cummins, who's, who's world-class. He's number one in the world at the moment. Stark, tall, left armour, knocking over tails. That's what he does. And uh, with Hazelwood out, in comes James Pattinson, and he bowled superbly. I've watched him all year, and he has yeah. been primed for this occasion. It's great to see him out there at the MCG, his home ground, and taking that opportunity. But for mine, as much as there's a gap between the batting New Zealand, I, I think it just proves that the bowlers of, of Australia are just so outstanding. Oh, no doubt about that. Just on James Pattinson, you would have played with him at Victoria. Yes, I did indeed. Towards yeah. the end of the last decade and even the early part of this decade. How much of a Philip is that for his confidence, given he burst onto the scene around the start of the decade? He's had his injury problems. To be back on the big stage and performing well, that must be great for him. Yeah, look, uh, catch up with him regularly as, a, as part of my role as commentating the Victorian game. Yeah. So we get an opportunity to, to see each other just about every other month. And some of the frustration over the years that he's had with the back injuries, you're talking about stress fractures and time away from the game and uh, change of action and trying to change things. And uh, look, he's had to work so incredibly hard. He was close to giving it away, but this oh, is really? a, a great, uh, and I think just mentally coming back and then breaking down again and coming back and breaking down. But I, I see him now um, as he's robust and his body's uh, developed and, he, and he's got the strength there, a bit like Pat Cummins as well. We're seeing them get through that, that injury stage when they're young and we wanted to play them, but the, fast bowling is so demanding on the body, but we're yeah. seeing them be... Hopefully, touch wood, bulletproof now, and uh, and they're performing exceptionally well. So long may that continue because he's such a ripping guy, James Pattinson, and I love playing with him as a young guy. He listened, he still does that. He, he's so attentive to what you're doing. He's always fun-loving as well, and yeah. um, he's a terrific teammate to have around, and there's no doubt the Australian team is, uh, it, it benefits from having such a, a great character in the, in the midst of uh, the, the top-end players. And we changed tact from the Australian bowling to the Australian batting. Travis Head, we're the century. I think that was the first century in a Boxing Day test by a number six since Ricky Ponting back in 1997. He played in the number six slot there and scored a century against South Africa. 114 of 234 deliveries for Travis Head. And there's always been a lot of conjecture whether he's a T20 player or whether he could adapt to the, the test match format. I think he's put paid to those critics there. I think so. I, I think he he certainly felt the pressure and he mm. was uh, he, he was limited in the in the way he was scoring. It wasn't a free-flowing innings by a number six that you would expect. I'm sure Ricky Ponting was a bit more mm. to the eye, uh, quite pleasing when he made the, the, the 100 uh, batting at six. But he's just worked his way through, found a way and – I suspect he he probably felt the pressure that he may even be playing for his spot in the Australian team. Mm. Um, I guess the, the downside is that he hasn't been able to convert those starts into hundreds, and now he's been able to do it. And maybe a bit like Marnus Labuschagne, where he broke through with a, a number of 50s in England, but then he just learnt the capacity to bat for long periods yeah. of time. And hopefully this is a breakthrough for him because – I think he's a fine player. I also think he's got great leadership qualities as well. He's captained his state. So, and Australia need to look and look broader. The, the more leaders they have who truly understand the game and the, the strategies and the subtleties of the game, the, the better they are. And I think Travis Head is um, not only a good batsman, but a, a good strategist as well. You speak about 
being a strategist, has he had to drastically change his own technique and mindset at the crease, given, as you mentioned, he's been batting longer, been more disciplined? Has that been a noticeable thing for you? Yeah, it's interesting. And, and there's many ways to, to go about how to learn to bat for long periods of time. There was a, a Chris Rogers has a great analogy, and I, I think it really sticks, particularly for young players. Uh, and and Chris is now one of the leading, where well, he's the leading batting coach up at the Cricket Academy, the National Cricket Centre now, and he teaches the next generation yeah. coming through. And he, he talks about uh, having a water tank, and uh, it, it, that's sort of your mind, and it's exhausting to bat for long periods of time. But if you've if you're so in, um, using up so much mental strength all the time, and rather than just switching off and switching on, and having the ability to calmly just switch on when you need to, and then relax in between deliveries, is if you're concentrating so intensely all the time, this this water going gushing out everywhere, the the taps on full and it's gushing out, and eventually the tank will just run out. And yeah. the, a lot of players, and we probably see it in in local cricket, they they make twenties, thirties, and forties, but then mentally they're done and they make a rash decision and then they're out. So there's no more water left in the tank, but the ability to turn the tap down and mentally re- have a refresher and be relaxed and be able to just turn the tap down, just turn it on when you need to, turn it off, um, it is a good analogy for players to understand you don't have to be mentally intense all the time yeah. when you're batting out there. And I think the very best as they develop, they, they learn that, that capacity to, to, to do so. So I think that's a good analogy, and I think they're, they're things that uh, – the, the, the top end players are still developing. Certainly, we're developing that at club cricket. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But uh, I, I think he's probably learning more about himself, about how to, how to do that and how to bat long periods of time, like Marnus, like all the players are. New Zealand were bowled out for 148 in their first innings. A very disappointing result. Tom Latham, the only batsman to really provide some resistance with a half century. No one else contributing. You mentioned that it's mainly due to the pressure applied by the Australian bowlers and just the depth of that bowling attack. Was there any subtle detriment in terms of the way New Zealand batted? Was there something noticeable from your point of view as a bowler in which they crumbled with their technique or even with their mental mindset? Well, I think they were just challenged. I, I think they were just challenged that, that the difference between, you know, low 130s, which is the, their attack, uh, or mid 130s, I suppose, that, that when they're really letting them go uh, to, you know, they're all 140s, the, the, the Australian players, they get extra bounce, extra pace, less time. I think they're just challenged over and over. They can, they can survive, and a lot of them are doing that. They're working hard, but they're only facing thirty balls and getting maybe ten or three runs, and and um, you know they're unable to score. It, it's a real challenge out there. And the wicket, I think, is playing well. There's some there's some bounce, there's some seam. Not that it's going sideways a lot, no. but there's enough there to if you bowl well in great areas and. Um, you know, for me, Pat Cummins really deserved that five for he's mm. he was uh he, he bowled so well and he is just so consistent. He's so economical too. Well, he's just a master of being able to just subtly work um, batsmen out and uh, and keep hitting the same area, but just be a little bit wider, a little bit closer to the stumps. And one of the best at doing that is Peter Siddle, actually, and we'll get him on yeah. later on in the show, uh, just around ha- how good he is at that. And Cummins is, is similar in that regard when there can be very little going on in the wicket. He, he creates something out of nothing. And uh, to get those five wickets, he, he was absolutely outstanding and good reward for a, a great summer. And just before we head to our first break, mm. do you predict any – resistance from the New Zealanders for the remainder of this series, perhaps in Sydney in the latter stages here in Melbourne. 
Is there some fight in them? <laughs> well, I, I think the next in is one thing I, I am impressed. They, they are learning. They, they, they are fast learners. They're sharing information. They're good at that. They're, they're actually strategically in the way that they're, they're bowling to the Australians. I love the way they're going about playing. So I've got some short pitch bowling. It's sorted out Steve Smith. They've stopped him scoring. They've stopped him being able to flow. Yeah. England were com- at a complete loss at the Ashes. They, they just didn't know how to stop him scoring. And they basically just went, oh, threw their arms in the air and went, oh, well, We'll just put the ball into play and hope he makes a mistake. New Zealand are really challenging the Australian batsman thinking, so that's the battle, and they're doing it very well, so I like that. I think that they would have learnt in the wicket and how to bat in the second innings, so that they would have become better from it. So I think I suspect there'll be some more fight and maybe a, a, a bigger, bit of, well, more resistance than just 148, so yeah. hopefully they fight that out. But when you get to the closest conditions to to New Zealand, Sydney, so yeah. th- that's it. And if they if they prepare a spinning wicket, um, New Zealand, yeah, Satner is really struggling as a spinner. He just really hasn't hit the mark. He's bowling too short or too full. He hasn't yeah. really challenged the Australian batsmen. So that they may produce a spinning wicket and think that that could be an advantage with line and maybe Swepson making a debut as well. So there could be some changes coming forward, but. It is going to suit the New Zealanders the most in the pitch conditions. Yeah, certainly scope for improvement there. You're listening to Stumps, your dedicated weekly cricket show. Bryce McGain and Damian Watson with you. When we come back from the break, Tody Dottabay to join us to reminisce about the famous 1987 Boxing Day Test. Welcome back. You're listening to Stumps, your weekly dedicated cricket show. Bryce McGain and Damian Watson with you. Well, given this Boxing Day test marks the first time in 32 years since the Trans-Tasman rivals in Australia and New Zealand last competed in a Boxing Day test, much has been made of the thrilling finish to that 1987 match where Mike Whitney famously outlasted Richard Hadley in the final over to secure a draw and subsequently a series win for Australia. What people often neglect to mention in that match is a debutante with a curly mullet and mustache named Tony Dotterbade, played a pivotal role in claiming 6 for 58 in New Zealand's second innings, along with a serviceable half-century with the bat in the first innings. And I'm pleased to say that Tony Dotterbade joins us on the line. G'day, Tony. How are you, boys? Yeah, not too bad. Are you filthy that Mike Whitney gets all the plaudits for being the hero in that match and your feats don't get the same attention? <laughs> well, as, as Bryce, I think we've discussed this uh, before as well, mate, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I've yet got a um, the proper thanks from Whit for getting out uh, half a dozen <laughs> overs before the end, which allowed Whit to come and make a name for himself and uh, and then go on to be the multi-media superstar that he is today. So, uh, <laughs> look, it, it it was a great it's a great memory and uh, yeah. It, it, Spending the first three days here at the ground this time around, certainly uh, there's some fond memories coming back. How did it come about, uh, Tony? Great to be talking with you, and it was great catching up with you yesterday. I should fully disclose uh, that we, we did have a good chat yesterday and, and, and have thoroughly been enjoying the, the cricket together. But how did your selection come about? Because it was a debut, and, and it was a bit of a surprise too. And uh, unfortunately, it was uh, you were the beneficiary of, of a good mate missing out. Well, that's that's true, mate. Yes, um, so it was a bit of a, an odd one. Uh, certainly not the sort of structured and well planned, and, and, uh, and, and you know everything is on social media now. Mm. Uh, there was back then. So uh, yeah, there, there were a couple of actual injury concerns coming into that game. Uh, Bruce Reed, who was unfortunately injured quite a quite a bit, uh, of course, in his short career. But um, Mike Whitney was in Sydney, just about to sit down for his uh, uh, for his Christmas dinner in Sydney, and got a call to say you're on the two o'clock flight to come down because Bruce Reed's injured. And, uh, 
And then I was actually brought into the squad, uh, asked to come and train on Christmas Day uh, for as, a, as, a, as a, an emergency injury cover for a great mate of mine, Merv Hughes, uh, who just had a bit of a hamstring uh, strain at the time. And um, uh, But then I trained with the boys and, uh, you know, right throughout the day and even went to the team meeting that night, and uh, which was up at the Hilton around the pool bar with a barbecue mm. and a few beers. So that's, again, <laughs> probably dates it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> And um, and yeah, so even 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 at that stage and in the morning, uh, Alan said, "Look, Merv's, Merv looks like he's going to be right, but come anyway and train with us in the morning and uh, warm up and spend the day with us in the room." So so that was terrific uh, as far as I was concerned. So I I came to the ground that morning with no expectation whatsoever, um, and then uh, and then uh, basically you know I was training with the team and just as Alan Border was coming out to toss the coin with Jeff Crow. Uh, he walked over, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Merv's not going to make it, you're in. Uh, good luck. And then turned around and walked off. So <laughs> so I had less than half an hour to, to prepare for my first test. And so that was that was it. It was a bit un, unusual, but it was on, on, uh, on, you know, in hindsight, it was probably good that I didn't have a lot of time to get nervous uh, before I knew it when I was out on the ground. And uh, it was another game of cricket. Did you, did you have an opportunity to let your family know that you'd been selected? Were they there just ha- happily watching you train and warm up the Australian players? Not at all. Not at all. No, uh, Bryce. No. It's um, so no mobile, no mobile phones either. Of course, at that time. So, um, so no. We, we were we were planning to go on a bit of a you know a few days family Christmas holiday at uh, down at Dalesford, <laughs> uh, and uh, and so I got back to the rooms and one of the first things I did was uh, get on the landline, uh, call mum at home, and uh, say, look, sorry, I can't come on the family holiday. I've got to play for Australia today. How good is that? <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> so um, so anyway, the, the team manager, I think it was Ian McDonald at the time, our team manager, he said, look, we've got a couple of tickets here. And uh, I said to mum and dad, look, if you want to come uh, you know, come down and uh, and we'll leave a couple of tickets for you at the gate. So so um, so they missed, they missed the start, but I think they were there for my, my first test wicket later in the day, which was lovely. We're speaking with former Australian cricketer Tony Dottabade here on Stumps. As a Victorian, how did it feel at 24 years of age to walk onto the hallowed turf of the MCG, your debut match? It must have sent shivers up your spine. Oh, look, it's something you dream about as a as a kid, uh, of course, and particularly a local boy in, in Victoria. Um, and my first memories here of coming to the Boxing Day test is in the mid-70s, you know, watching Ian Chappell and Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson and these sort of guys uh, with, with my uncle and, and my parents and whatnot. So, so um, yeah, look, it's something you, you always dream about but never really consider as a serious proposition. And... Uh, I do remember as I got back into the rooms in all the flurry of uh, in all the flurry of activity. But I looked around. I took a moment to look around the, the, the dressing room at the time and uh, and saw, you know, some terrific cricketers, but smart cricketers, not necessarily the most talented players I've ever, I've ever played with or against, but really smart cricketers. Mm. And uh, the overwhelming feeling was uh, relief, you know, that I'd always put this thing away out in front that I'd probably never do, and uh, and was relieved that I had actually could call myself a Test cricketer. So um, that, that didn't last long, I suppose. Uh, as I said, the, the, the whole mechanics of the game, you get out on the ground and you've got a job to do, and uh, that took over. Well, you mentioned that some of the players there, and I, I might pop a few in there, that you, you actually batted with Peter Sleep for a long period of time. He got 90 in the game and you got 50 runs, and you really saved the Australian innings. It was really looking dire at that stage. Not, not that that's a pun on the wicketkeeper either, but he was there. Um, <laughs> but, but it was looking really bad, and I remember being at the game thinking, oh, no, we're done here. We're done, and it was just Peter Sleep and yourself. But you, you built a terrific partnership, um, and you happened to be the last man out, and you put on some good runs with Craig McDermott in that first innings as well. 
Yeah, that, that, that's right. The way it um, worked out, you know, we the New Zealanders batted first and got just over 300, uh, 315 or so, or, and then uh, and then we found ourselves, you know, seven for 213 when when I, I came to the wicket, and and again it was uh, it all was happening pretty quickly, and uh, you know Peter was out in the middle and. Uh, those that knew Peter was—he's uh, not a complicated character, uh, Peter. They, they didn't call him Sounder. Uh, his nickname wasn't Sounder for nothing. You know, Sounder Fleet. <laughs> he was—he was a pretty—he was a pretty laid-back uh, character, which was actually great at the time because I often joke now that you know I was—I was looking for uh, words of wisdom for him at uh, you know at the end of over where you meet in the middle, and uh, for two and a half hours I didn't get any at all. <laughs> uh, so there was no, there was no words of wisdom, but there was no panic either. You know, he was a very very—it was just like it was a. He could have been playing in the park uh, with Sounder and we just took it ball by ball and over by over and before we knew it, we chipped away at another 80 or so and uh, got within got within strike of the, the New Zealand um, uh, total and then he was out, unfortunately. He made 90 and I really felt for Peter. It was his highest test score and he really deserved 100 that day. Mm. Um, and Craig McDermott, who I'd played with uh, since the under-19 days, uh, so I, again, I knew him pretty well and uh, we were two young players uh, coming in there, and we thought, well, let's 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 try and take this a bit further and put on another fifty or sixty. So, so by the time I got out, um, you know, for an even fifty, we'd we'd uh, had a handy lead. So, it was just one of those games that ebbed and flowed uh, backwards and forwards. And uh, you know, apart from the personal highlight for myself, it was a magnificent game of Test cricket. And Tony, you're faced against one of the absolute legends. In fact, it's uh, he's been knighted because of his services to cricket, Sir Richard Hadley. Now. Looking at the overs he bowled in this test, this is phenomenal. You must have faced an enormous amount. He bowled 44 overs just in the first innings. Um, and as we faced 145 overs, you would have faced a whole lot of that. What was it like facing a legend like that? But he was no spring chicken either. I think he was in his late to mid to late 30s. Was that right? Yes, he was 36 years old at the time, and uh, look, he was just a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal cricketer, a superhuman effort. But he was also one of my heroes at the time. Uh, you know, as a young, as a young first-class bowler, you know, you, you obviously look at those that do it well. And and um, I used to sit at home with the old, uh, whenever the international cricket New Zealand were playing in international cricket on Channel Nine, and uh, and actually have the video recorder going and taping his spells. I'd actually tape his spells on VHS just to go back and study how he used the crease and, you know, the way, he, you know, his efficient run-up and his action. And, uh, and you know, I admired him a lot. And to find myself there at the other end in a test match was, was really quite surreal uh, then. But, um, you know, he, he, was, he was just a... That was a phenomenal effort, 75 overs for the game. And um, not only that, but 31 overs on the last day. You know, 31 overs in a day is superhuman effort from anyone, let alone someone who's bowled 44 in the first innings and was 36 years old. So um, he well and truly, uh, much as I make a joke of it, uh, about the man of the match, he, he, he genuinely de- absolutely deserved that man of the match honours. Well, he took five wickets in both innings, but there was a bowler that did take six in the second innings and uh, he, he just <laughs> outperformed Sir Richard Hadley. So uh, I guess the question is, <laughs> when's your knighthood coming? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well... You know, there was yes, I did take one more. Uh, we had uh, performed me in one innings in one game, but uh, he had about 330 or 340 wickets uh, uh, more uh, than me in, in other games as well. So uh, no, no expectations there. But uh, you know, he was he, he was the ultimate professional, and uh, and you know, but to, to set that, you talked about the second innings. So so we had a 
a slight lead. And, uh, and again, you know, they look like getting away from us again in the second innings. I recall Rick, uh, Martin Crow, the great Martin Crow, was batting really well. Yep. And uh, looking like they were building a bit of a lead. And uh, I was involved in a run out with uh, Dean Jones, which ran Andrew Jones out, and then uh, and then I managed to get Martin. So we were chipping away. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, also I think Craig McDermott was was off injured uh, during the second innings, which gave me a chance to bowl with a second new ball. So. Yeah, we've got a couple of late wickets as well to finish the sixth. So that was a, a great memory. But then we uh, we had the job of 240-odd in the last innings on a, on a wearing pitch here in Melbourne. Yes, and eventually the Australians did manage to hold on for a draw by the end in one of the most famous test match finishes of all time. Tony, really appreciate your time on Stumps this evening. Thanks for reminiscing about your debut match. I'm sure it holds great memories for you. And enjoy the remainder of this current test match between the Aussies and the Kiwis. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, uh, Bryce. It's been a pleasure. Good on you. Tony Donabay joining us here. Always great to reminisce. One of the great matches, that one in 87. Absolutely. And as a young kid at the ground watching a couple of the days of it uh, and seeing Tony Donabay out there, he was a bit of an idol of mine. But interesting what he did is watch the video of his hero in Richard Hadley and then imagine facing him just uh, in on your debut test. Uh, incredible story. And uh, he did perform incredibly well in that first game for himself. We'll have Peter Siddle on the show just after the break, but as we go to the break, let's listen to the great Richie Benno describe Tony Dottomade in very exalted fashion. Well, there's no need for Bill Laurie, as it turns out, and Tony Dottomade gets his six. What a great effort. They tell me he's a very modest young man. We know from looking at him that he's a good young cricketer and very enthusiastic. Welcome back. You're listening to Stumps, your weekly dedicated cricket show. Bryce McGain and Damian Watson with you. Now, Bryce, I'm not sure if you caught the big bash last night between the Adelaide Strikers and the Melbourne Stars, but that deft bowling from Peter Siddle was absolutely fantastic, showing his class once again. Oh, no doubt about that. That's exactly what he's found. And just a, a fascinating part. He was uh, on standby for the, the Boxing Day test and yeah. then... He, uh, he he goes, which is a red ball game, and then trans transforms himself into uh, shutting out the game for the Adelaide Strikers. Adelaide Strikers doing incredibly well at the moment. They've really got some momentum in the Big Bash, and I think recruits like Peter Siddle last year, and then Cameron White coming in gives them uh, some real experience. Greg Shippard, um, well, probably the, the, the Yoda of Australian cricket at the moment. A, a lot yeah. of his prodigies are people that he's coached and now coaching. We were talking to him last week on Stumps, and he suggested that Cameron White, in terms of leadership and knowledge and strategy and uh, his ability to uh, do those parts of the game, is absolutely elite. So there's no doubt that that is uh, he's not only a good captain but an elite leader um, is the understanding of the game. So no doubt that's helping the, the, the strikers as well, which I'm pretty happy with just quietly, being a, a strikers uh, former strikers player myself. Just in regards to deaf bowling, do you have to change your rhythm and technique based on the form of the game when it comes to deaf bowling, or are the principles the same regardless of whether it's a T20 game or a test match? Well, I think his technique remains the same, but executing the plan to precision, that's what the very best do there. They they are... Uh, and because the batsmen are really putting some pressure on, they can ramp the ball, they can hit it to all parts of the ground. But it's the ability to get the batsman and, and sum up that particular player and the plan to make it very difficult for them to to hit you. And sometimes bowling a Yorker, it, it's often said, well, why don't they just keep bowling Yorkers? But it, the margin for error on a Yorker 
in today's game, you only have to miss it by 20 centimetres and it's a half volley and they are just getting back deep in the crease and they can launch that for six with the bats they have now, where in the past the Yorker had hit the, the toe end of the bat and wouldn't go anywhere. The bats now are sending those for six. So mm. the margin for error is just so difficult. But uh, Peter Siddle's skill has been amazing and uh, and uh, he's, he's really redeveloped himself probably in the last four years uh, as a T20 player. Probably wasn't seen as a strength to him, but... Yeah. Credit to him, the evolution of him and his bowling to to then go and be able to de- deliver the way he is uh, for the strikers is most impressive. And being able to watch the way he's been going about his shield cricket at the moment and the way he bowled in the Ashes and the way he's played in England, like he's at the peak of his powers at the moment. It's most impressive. Is it difficult in terms of being an ambidextrous bowler, if you want to use that term, if you play a T20 game and then a test match at Sheffield Shield level and then a one-day international or a one-day game at domestic level, as it's known, if you have just a multitude of those games, one after the other, different formats from week to week, is it difficult to change your style and your mindset in that scenario? Or do you think the way we schedule it now is a lot better and that it's consistent? We have the Big Bash season within an allocated slot, the Sheffield Shield before and after. The one-dayers tend to come early in the season these days. Is yeah, that probably better from a bowler's perspective. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think that the ones that are, are good at adapting, uh, and they often are the the more senior players who mentally can can shift their mindset between it. Uh, they can then execute their plans. The T Twenty is so uh, uh, well, it's it's so analytical in that they need to deliver particular plans for particular bowlers with particular fields, and the ability to execute through that. Uh, is often the challenge. That That's the biggest challenge to bowlers under the pressure of the game and the pressure of the batsmen that they're applying. So the ones that have some experience of doing that, guys like Peter Siddle and, uh, and Lachlan's another, he's a fantastic bowler around his ability to, to execute under pressure. They're the, they're the very best around T20 games. Uh, there's probably more room for error in red ball cricket uh, where the batsmen probably, well, certainly aren't going as hard as what they are in, in T20. No. That's exactly right. What about Gleb Maxwell last night? 43 off 25 deliveries, underpinned by four sixes. He was very, very miraculous in his shot selections, it must be said. He was very entertaining to watch. Gee, I've enjoyed watching him after having a refresher, yeah. a, a mental refresher where he was just completely mentally exhausted um, and felt the pressure of the game. He had a break. He's refreshed. He's leading that Stars team like nothing else. Unfortunately, he didn't get them across no. the line last night, but he was the danger man. It was Siddle bowling him out that, that turned the game. Uh, they, they, I, I believe they would have won had he have stayed at the crease and continued batting the way he was. Uh, he had all the answers, uh, you know, as you said, 43 off 25 balls, 175 stri- 172 strike rate. Uh, you know, he, he is at the very, very best and the pinnacle of uh, of Australian cricketers. I'm surprised, and it, probably the, the question mark might have been around how he was mentally and how he was coping and things like that for his non-selection. There's a one-day series after the, the Sydney test where the yeah. Australians will go over to India. I'm staggered that he's not part of that group uh, because – I think Glenn Maxwell needs to be playing in all forms of the game for Australia. He, he is absolutely outstanding. He is the most feared player from the other nations because he can change the game in two hours, uh, whether that be a test match, batting at six and handy with his fielding, uh, more than handy with his fielding. He's elite. He's one of the world's best, so he can pull a run out off. His bowling's useful. Um, it's not front line, but it's useful in, in red ball games. But mm. uh, he, he's batting. He, he is just a... 
superb cricketer, and uh, I think more opportunities will come his way in, in probably Test cricket, but certainly in the one day we've got to play him in, in white ball games for Australia. Well, you've probably been asked this question before because it's been a lingering talking point in cricket in Australia for a long time as to his selection, and it's always been a source of debate as well. Where do you stand on it? I mean, you've given us an indication already, but why do you think he isn't picked as often as he probably should be, according to some? Well, it's interesting. I think in the past it's probably been of um, him not fitting the mould that they expect players to be, but I think now under Justin Langer, uh, the players are more encouraged to be themselves and and, and the, the ability to to have a group of players just accepting that everyone is a little bit different. And it was one of the things with, with the Victorian lineup that I've said it many times and probably said it on stumps a few times. But the point being is that we're all from different backgrounds, but we all accepted that we were. We had a forklift driver from Ballarat in yeah. Shane Harwood. We had, you know, a bogan from Heidelberg. That was Mick Lewis <laughs> and uh, myself. I worked in IT. Andrew McDonald was a country bloke from Albury, just so laid back. But And there was players like Brad Hodge who were born to play, you know, top-level cricket. And, you know, same with David Hussey and the, 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 the quality of those players were, were all very different, but we all came together and accepted that everyone was a bit different. It wasn't perfect all the time, but I think the Australian lineup under Justin Langer is, is better at that, are better at managing different personalities and different people. And I think players are now embracing the fact that that is a good formula for good team success is accepting those things. Now, selection discussions themselves, it's a vexed issue. You went through it in terms of the debate surrounding whether you should be selected. It's something that every cricketer goes through when they reach international level. Mm. Glenn Maxwell's had to overcome a lot of that, and there's always a lot of external noise and scrutiny. How difficult is it for an individual to deal with that in this modern age where we have the added compounding of social media as well. I mean, you were probably there around the start of the social media age about a decade ago, but just the increased scrutiny, is there better communication practices in place for players to deal with the scrutiny or is it just part and parcel of being a player that you're expected to deal with? Yeah, there is support for that and how to uh, manage those type of things, but it it, it is largely up to each individual and and being able to cope with uh, the the analysis of everybody and maybe it's the analysis of people without, uh, you know, having walked a, a step in anyone's shoes. Yeah. It's quite critical from the outside. Uh, that They are high profile. They are under pressure. They uh, And uh, everyone has their right, I suppose, now with the keyboard warriors to, to make their, their point across. And uh, But some of it certainly is, is way over the top. But cricketers certainly feel it. Um, it was a, a terrific conversation and uh, th- that I heard yesterday and uh, it was sharing between a pro golfer and a, and a professional cricketer saying, you know, what's the hardest game? And the, the golf was, oh, clearly golf, that's fine. Um, and, and so a point was made which was which was most impressive, I thought, from the cricketer said, okay, if you, were, um, if you made a bogey and you were over that bogey putt and you missed it and it might have been the, the second, third or fourth hole that you're playing in a tournament and that means you're out for the tournament, you're out completely, how much pressure is on that putt? Mm. And so in golf, you can always come back, you make a mistake, but then there's other holes to come back. In cricket, there's only one go when you're batting. You, you can make one mistake and that's it. That's the game. That's yeah. It's sorted. So the pressure on cricketers is, is immense. And uh, it's it, uh, it's not surprising that uh, many now are, are mm. struggling with it under the scrutiny of others. But maybe, you know, we need to have a bit more of an understanding of how difficult it is being a professional cricketer. Uh, well said, Bryce. We'll take a break here on Stumps. Bryce McGain and Damian Watson with you. We'll come back with more right after this. 
You're listening to Stumps. Damien Watson and Bryce McGain with you. Well, at Metricon Stadium on the Gold Coast last night, the Adelaide Strikers posted a thrilling five-run victory over the Melbourne Stars to sit in second spot on the Big Bash League table. And one of the pivotal reasons behind the win was the deft bowling of Peter Siddle, who took three for 24. And I'm privileged to say that Peter Siddle joins us on the line. Thanks so much for your time, Pete. No worries, guys. Cheers for having me on. Now, when you're deaf bowling in a tight scenario such as last night, what are your methods in terms of keeping your composure? Does it come through experience more than anything else? Um, well, I think a little bit of that and a, and a, and a little bit of luck. But, um, yeah, it's one of those games, I think, um, for a bowler that, you know, you're going to have um, the good day like I did last night, but I'm probably going to have, you know, a, another five bad ones before I, <laughs> I get that chance to, to do that again. But. Yeah, it is nice to be on the on the good end of a um, of a of a of a closing out death uh, death bowling at the end. There's no doubt about that. Great to be catching up with you, Sids. Um, uh, on stumps, one of the things you had to get your head around. You're on standby in the the test match in Melbourne for the MCG test. Now, I've got to ask you a question about that in a second. But how do you transform from that and the communication around what your role was there and your potential role to then suddenly being back with the strikers and, and playing T20 cricket. It must have been a whirlwind for you. Yeah, it was a little bit. I think the the lucky thing for me was that at least I'd been preparing for um, the white ball stuff in the sort of the, the week leading up to the start of the big bash. Um, so I was, I was in a good frame of mind with the white ball. And then the red ball is something that comes pretty um, naturally to me. I'm a lot, lot more... Um, common with the, with the red ball game so just just finishing shield cricket not long before that um, meant that I was still in a good frame of mind for the red ball um, but I think yeah the white ball is the one that you need to be a bit more prepared for so um, it all worked out obviously not well with the selection but um, in preparation for last night's um, performance um, I'd prepared well. You must be happy, though, for James Pattinson, who's, who's a great mate of yours, a Danny Nong teammate, uh, and, and performing exceptionally well. You've both had incredible summers for Victoria, and I mean that because I've watched you every game. The two of you are bowling as well as ever. Are you in career-best form? Um, yeah, I, I tend to think so. I think especially in the last couple of years, um, I believe I'm bowling better, the, the best I have in a long time, I think. Um, the body's feeling good. Um, I've got plenty of cricket under my belt, and I think when you're in a good frame of mind and, you, and, and the ball's coming out well, and, you, and you're getting the rewards with the wickets, I think you know you're always in a good place. And, and, that, and that's how it's been this summer. I, I was obviously happy with how I went over in England in the county season and then in the Ashes, and to be able to come home and you know still uh, still put in those performances for Victoria. Um, out in the field, it's been great. I think you know I'm in a good place and and, and not worrying too much about the the higher selection and just enjoying my cricket. And uh, I think um, yeah, I'm reaping the rewards for that. There's no doubt you can see that you, you're smiling all the time. Gone as the angry Peter Siddle, maybe <laughs> as a young kid, it's probably still simmering away underneath. Maybe you're controlling it a bit better, but. It's terrific to see you're doing uh, so well with the ball. Do you benefit from bowling a lot of overs and having good work under your belt? Do you do you benefit from that, or do you um, like to have a break and, and manage your loads? No, I've always tended to try and continue to keep bowling. I think it's it's so hard when you take a break and have to try and you know get back into it and and, and, and bowl big spells and big and big overs in a day. Um, I tend to find that, yeah, the more cricket I'm playing, um, the, the better and easier it is to get through and recover and, and you know, keep the body um, ticking over. So, yeah, I think the last couple of years playing all that cricket over in England, in Australia, 
Um, yeah, like I said, the body's in a great place. Um, touch wood that it, it stays like that for the remainder of the season. But um, yeah, just enjoying my cricket, loving it. Um, still love the battle and the aggression out in the field. But I think I've just come to come to learn that um, you know, just try and be a bit smarter and a bit wiser out in the field and uh, and and play the game that way. We're speaking with Peter Siddle here on Stumps. Uh, Glenn Maxwell, just on last night's game, displayed some creative shot-making, 43 off 25 deliveries before you dismissed him. As a bowler, what's the most difficult aspect of bowling to someone who is red-hot in that situation in a T20 match? Is it just a matter of continuing to persist? A little bit, yeah. They're they're hard. There's obviously, um, obviously a lot of guys in the T20 format that can whack the ball and put the ball over the fence, but there's very few like Maxwell, that can sort of play the play the ball 360 around the field. No matter what uh, field places you have and where you want to bowl mm. the ball, he'll find a way to put it um, where the fielders aren't. So he's probably one of the harder ones to bowl to. And, yeah, last night I was pretty lucky to get a little uh, a little knock on to the stumps and, and dismiss him. But, yeah, I think we've seen already this season of the Big Bash that um, how dangerous he can be and, and what a class player he is. So it's good to see him back out on the park and, Obviously, last night it was good to see the back of him, but um, yeah, he, he, he is destructive and it's exciting. It's exciting for the game, I think, for viewers, even to play against guys like that because, you know, it makes you stand up. It makes you perform to a, to a higher level and I think he brings the best out in everyone. Yeah, well said. Uh, it's a bit of a whirlwind, the Big Bash at the moment. You're up in the Gold Coast. Where do we find you now? And there's a game tomorrow and it's a huge one. Renegades and the Strikers at, at Marvel Stadium uh, on Sunday night, straight on after the test. So the cricket lovers in Melbourne, they can go to the test all day, then walk to the other end of town and uh, get their fix of T20 cricket. Where do we find you now? Is it a night in your home bed? It is, yeah. We um, we landed back in this afternoon, so straight home. Um, yeah, just to kick back and relax at home in bed, which is good. But, um, yeah, it's, we've got a couple of quick back-to-back games here. We play, obviously, tomorrow night um, against the... Renegades and then same thing, back home, day off, and then play New Year's Eve. So three games on the trot, um, which can be a good thing if you're winning, and, and hopefully um, we can you know continue that uh, tomorrow night. But, yeah, a big game, Renegades. Um, I know they haven't had the start they would have liked after winning it um, last season, but um, dangerous side, a lot mm. of class players. So we'll have to be on the ball and, and hopefully, yeah, put in another good performance. Well, Peter, really appreciate your time. Good luck for tomorrow night. Thanks for giving us such great insight and all the best. Cheers, guys. Thanks very much. Go well, Sid. Good on you. Peter Siddle joining us there. Uh, Absolute star for the Adelaide Strikers. It was good to get his mindset as well, just explaining how he approaches T20 cricket and bowling in that situation. Yeah, incredibly experienced and great to see him performing so well. And he does work with the loads. Uh, he does like bowling a lot. And uh, he, as as he admitted to, he's in career best form. And it's great to see him doing so well. He's got many, many years ahead of him uh, continuing in the former years. Great to see him doing well. And great to see the strikers doing well at the pointy end. Big game on Sunday night, Joe. I'm looking forward to that one. Absolutely. Just before we wrap up, Sydney Sixers v Sydney Thunder, the derby. Do you have a tip there? The Thunder are right at the top of the table. They're doing so well. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can't put anything past my old coach, Greg Shippard. He's, he's cagey <laughs> with the Sixers. So I, I think the Sixers might get over the line, but it's good to see the Thunder doing well. Well, Bryce, thanks again for joining us on Stumps, and Happy New Year before we speak to you next. Happy New Year to you too, Damo. And on you, Stumps, our weekly dedicated cricket show. Hope you enjoyed the program. We'll catch you next week.